This is John Steplin. This is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 84. Uh, with me in Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hey, good evening. Uh, in Toronto, Corey Morningstar. Hi, guys. In New York, Long Island, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, guys. And in India, Varun Mathur. Hi, Varun. Hello, hello. So uh, it's, I think it's been about a week and a half since the last mm. podcast. Um, a number of things obviously have happened to talk about. But I wanted to start with uh, an article Corey found because it, I think it will segue into a number of other topics and because it's such a perfect example of of something we've talked about before, but I'll turn it over to you, Cora. Okay, thanks. Um, this is published by um, a website called Decrypt, April 17th, 2023. And the title is EU lawmakers call for humans, for quote, human-centric, safe and trustworthy, unquote, AI development. Politicians working on the EU's response, AI development, want the bloc to work with the US on a human-centric solution. And um, I read this and I just thought, yeah, I thought it was a perfect, perfect example of what um, I was really trying to get across in the whole Greta series and what has been um, sort of par for the course ever since. You get the public to demand these things, whether it's from uh, NGO or, you know, quote unquote, civil society, whether it's from, um, is the case of this letter that people will read. I think we talked about it the last time, the letter that came out that was signed by Musk and a bunch of, um, you know, tech geeks or whatever you want to call them, um, big hotshots, billionaires to do with um, how um, dangerous, right, that AI was becoming and how fast paced it was. Right. And so I'll just read um, a couple paragraphs out of here because we got the same thing. Um, you've got We Mean Business, the climate group, same thing. All through COVID, they were sending letters um, urging um, for legislation. Basically, they need that legislation in place to, in that way, you know, once they have that, that's a means to, you know, find money in pensions, to find money in treasuries, to get um, people investing money into it. They need that legislation, which people don't really understand. So it basically is, how do I explain it? Sort of like reverse, right? Um, they pretend they're caving in to public pressure, but it's actually set up. Um, that's the appearance of it, but it's the exact opposite. They're just waiting to, you know, they have this letter, they have these things already in the works and they're waiting for the right moment to put them into place. And then people will turn around NGOs and say, oh, look, we won, we won. So here's some um, excerpts. A group of lawmakers working on the European Union's approach to artificial intelligence has called for the creation of global governing principles for the burgeoning technology in response to fears about the pace of its development. A dozen members of the European Parliament signed a letter calling for US President Joe Biden and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to convey a global summit with a view to create a preliminary set of governing principles for the development, control, and deployment of very powerful artificial intelligence. Right. So they're again, yeah, you have to read that sentence again. They're calling for the development, control, and deployment. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not like they're saying, wait, hold on, we've got to, you know, go back and slow this thing down. It's actually 
putting in place everything to speak to put it, um, you know, to advance it. The framework is also expected to be developed with the aim of steering development, a very powerful artificial intelligence and a direction as human centric, safe and trustworthy. Um, the signatories are members of a group that has been charged with putting together the EU's own approach to regulation known as the AI Act. Hmm. Um, and that talks about the letter. The letter was in part a response to last month's Future of Life Institute letter um, signed by the likes of Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, and suggested a six-month moratorium of further enhancements in AI. Notice that there is that they didn't take, they didn't do that, right? There's I have not heard of any kind of moratorium. Um, what else? I'll just read you the last um, paragraph. Those working on the act say it could be the first law on AI made by a major regulat um, regulatory anywhere in the world. It could also serve as a, sorry, regulator anywhere in the world. It could be ser serve as, <laughs> I'll try to talk here, as a blueprint for other regulatory initiatives in different regulatory traditions and environments around the world, right? So this is all just about legislation and getting things in place. Um, the EU's council agreed on the common position on the AI Act in December of last year. Next, the parliament will agree on its position after which the two institutions will negotiate in a process known as trilogues. Um, at the same time, European Union has been making strides to keep up with digital technology this week. Parliamentarians will vote on landmark crypto regulation markets and crypto assets, part of a broader package of digital reforms. So yeah, yeah. I'll open, open the floor on that. Um, <clears throat> Johan. Right, so, so I think this notion of a, of a safe and, and trustworthy AI development is, is pretty funny. Like this safe and trustworthy reproduction of, of a machinery for, for extending the agency of, of this totally anti-human social order. So, so this is myth-making, I think. It should, it should like elicit the same associations as the, the safe, a humane and trustworthy development of concentration camps. But, but still, on the note of uh, AI legislation, the AI Act, so, so the PI of one, one of my research projects is involved in, in this, uh, this, uh, this process of, of around the AI Act on the EU level. And I think that sort of legislation can be, from a pragmatic perspective, useful. It can throw a few, few wrenches in the gears. If, if it's used correctly. Well, <clears throat> what, what struck me about that story when, when Corey shared it with us was that, that this is the, the architecture of a marketing campaign, whatever it is. And we've seen it before on a national level. Uh, <clears throat> with the war against crime, uh, Clinton's crime bill, uh, that people, there was a sensationalizing of, of gang crime, gang violence, black gang violence, inner, inner city violence, these lurid stories, uh, exaggerated and, and, and nakedly racist, but exaggerated and it instilled a kind of fear in the public <clears throat> that you know if they took the wrong off-ramp from the freeway <clears throat> they could get caught in this horrible jungle 
of the inner city and be uh, victims of this of black on white violence. That that was that was the theme, the marketing theme, and they pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and it was everywhere. And then the crime bill comes along and everybody, all the white bourgeoisie in America applaud it and it's going to protect us and we, et cetera. But I mean, there's a thousand examples of this kind of stuff mm. where people end up begging for things that they never wanted before that, that the artificial fears have been created yeah. and, <clears throat> And the propaganda is is there's like a carpet bombing of propaganda across all media platforms, and people are afraid. And and you saw this with the AI over the last six months. I can't mm -hmm. tell you the number of uh, of fear driven articles about AI. Our Android overlords will take over the world, runaway AI, supercomputers are dangerous, we can't control them, and on and on and on. And they were farcical. Mm -hmm. And Johan wrote a great piece, I wrote about it too, because you were seeing these increasingly silly stories about um, <clears throat> computers can read your thoughts, can read yeah. your brain just nonsensical and mm. and i will link johan's article but but i have mm. said the same thing others have said the same thing uh johan's piece summarized the the naked um uh, uh sort of dishonesty mendacity mm. of of and and that it i mean it it, it is doesn't even it's just interesting to me that that people this is that loss of meaning idea again. When somebody says computers can read your your thoughts, computers can read your brain, this sentence makes no sense. This is a nonsensical mm -hmm. sentence in and of itself. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means nothing. It's it's bad science fiction. It's not even good science fiction. But but so degraded are, it seems, the public's critical capacity, their 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 ability to to think critically and independently about anything, to analyze any particular question, mm -hmm. that <clears throat> these marketing campaigns, the propaganda of the government is more effective than it has ever been. It seems, and certainly that was seen with with COVID and and we've seen it with the Russophobia over the last uh, two years directed at Russia really over the last decade and really over the last 60 years but never mind uh Varun yeah with this I think uh, there's also one angle where I mean you have generations of programmed behavior in the public and that information gets fed into mm. some sort of cloud. And the collision of those two, it seems like they're calling it telepathy between the machine and the man. Or so, uh. so it's like it's it's as if a program, pre-programmed public is interfacing with a pre-programmed machine, and the outcome is then supposed to be some kind of spontaneous knowledge creation, which is just absolutely absurd because I mean because of markets because of propaganda because of like you said marketing and such things 
how people interact with society and therefore also with with digital systems is already it's a prefabricated behavior right. and so if you if you put that into some sort of machine and you think now suddenly the machine is reading your mind that's just it's just there is no knowledge base behind that it's just all all programmable in that sense right like all, all yeah <clears throat> no it's it's um the entire ai discussion is fraught with with sort of junk science and solipsistic uh, theory that, that it's like game theory in a sense too there's there's just no there there the stuff is is um, um, utterly impoverished theoretically johan uh, yeah and and I, I agree and, and from my point of view the issue is the loss of, of philosophy epistemology and metaphysics from from science's framework because the problem both of you are are describing here is <clears throat> the impossibility of reducing subjectivity consciousness to its its objective material basis that they are not the same I mean that's a serious question, but but I I, I wrote wrote a book on that issue. I, I can prove that it's impossible to to perform that sort of reduction, and but that sort of that that kind of question, those metaphysical issues are not even entertained within the framework of science as they were maybe 60, 70 years ago. Yeah. Just uh, another thing. A, a friend from work wrote me a, a text I think yesterday. Because his his kids had apparently, uh, th th there was this uh, this narrative going around in 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 their world, so to speak, on how the introduction of, of AI in in digital media and video games basically means um, an infinite progression of actually conscious beings in some sort of uh, <laughs> yeah. So he, he was like, yeah, you gotta you gotta say something about this it's detrimental <laughs> well this is i mean i have written about this and mm. and i think some of my better blog posts actually were about this mm. because it it it's such it i don't it, i'm always at a loss where to begin when people introduce this idea that that supercomputers and artificial intelligence are right on the brink of achieving sentience that yeah. that computers will be able to think and be conscious humanity doesn't even know what consciousness is within the framework of of science they can't describe it or define it or explain it i mean shit they can't even explain electricity let alone consciousness uh and and it has gotten me thinking a lot about and johan you and i have talked about this at great length but the evolution of 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 science from from the enlightenment industrial revolution <clears throat> the direction taken by uh technological innovations and 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 why and where they appeared and the influence they had societally 
Uh, and Jonathan Beller is, is very good about the, the white supremacist underpinnings of much of this post-industrial revolution innovation. But, but going back even further, there are much deeper questions about, and Varun and I have talked about this too, uh, much deeper questions about the, the, the loss of all the, well, all the things that have been lost through this submission to technology. And people talk about computers as system adaptive. We talked about this last time that one, one um, adjusts to the technology because one has to, to use it as a tool if it were a tool. Uh, and, and that goes back, let's say to the industrial revolution, certainly the end of the 19th century, we've talked about this before too, the invention of optical instruments and so forth, microscopes and <clears throat> that gave birth to everything from the detective novel to uh, uh, psychoanalysis, but, but that there was this unseen world and so forth. But science, as we think of it over the last 60 years has not real, in spite of, in spite of all the claims about cyber, you know, advancements and electronic media, the digital world, science has really not theoretically advanced at all. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of coasted along exactly where it has been because in some way there was an exhaustion uh, from, from the early 20th century on. And, and you see this with the, the kind of embarrassingly uh, uh, impenetrable quantum theory that's <laughs> unprovable and unobservable and and unusable. Uh, but but it it begs even deeper questions about about the 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 nature of being human and and life and death and escape from thoughts about the same. Um, Corey and then Varun. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that, like so much of that is distraction, the whole sci-fi element when um, I think the real crux of it is automating the workforce, especially for huge corporate warehouses, that type of thing, right, in the West and that. Um, I wanted to mention when I um, found this article a few years ago, it was called partner on the World Economic Forum website under the one of the centers for the fourth industrial revolution. It was called partnering, partnering with civil society in the fourth industrial revolution. And then when I brought that up a couple years later and read it, it seemed to me that the language had changed, but I wasn't sure. So I took the link and went back to the Wayback Machine and found it there. And sure enough, um, that's what it was called. And then it was changed. And if you listen to this language, the title is changed with the same link, technology and social justice community. Mm. And then and then under that partner, the same title, partnering with civil society, the fourth industrial revolution. And then this part was deleted altogether. Okay, so before this is what it read, the challenge, growing public backlash against technology disruptions of future workforces and new digital threats to already vulnerable populations are all signs of an increasingly unequal fourth industrial revolution. In an age 
of increased transparency and shifts. And then in the new version, that's completely deleted. And it starts in an age of increased transparency and unprecedented commitments to racial and social justice. <laughs> uh, Roger said to say, so anyway, it's a complete revamping, again, using the language and the framing. Yeah, <clears throat> that's <laughs> it's kind of remarkable, actually. Varun? Yeah, just adding on to this and what you were saying before, I think the legitimizing of this kind of an instrument that apparent science has come up with is also quite dangerous because it it is project like society will start projecting a sort of objectivity onto it, mm. which it already has, I think. And what Corey just stated in the sense, like the change of language that they're using now. So moral rights, social rights, all of this is going to get decided by AI. Like, right, right. How does that, <clears throat> um, how does that ring through to movement, to what I'm allowed and not allowed? Or, you know, like, because societal rules, which are then turned into law and policy, if all of that starts getting decided by this kind of inane technological dystopic nonsense, then we are in real trouble because there is no reason, there's no reasonability to it anymore. It's only, it's only a power structure. It's just the power structure. There is nothing else. It's like calling, it's like calling, um, I don't know, your electricity company for a complaint, but staying on hold for half an hour, just talking to bots, basically. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, more <clears throat> Bernard Harcourt has a couple of very good books out about some of this. Uh, uh, I think the title is Against Prediction, but I'm not sure. Anyway, but you can find Bernard Harcourt, um, and he's been interviewed a number of times. You can find that online. I think that it's interesting how this the chat box thing has taken off. And yeah. part of that, of course, was massive marketing campaign to bring it to people's attention and push it forward and everything. And <clears throat> generally, when I talk to people about this, they are both, well, yeah, no, it's flawed and they're a little bit critical and, and suspicious of it and, and skeptical. But by and large, they also just, there's this wow factor, like, gosh, golly, that is just amazing. It's, you know. And when you sit back for a second and think about what is what is the point of these things exactly? Uh, so you have people writing code, advanced acres of code to enable this technology to predict text. Uh, so, so you have code being written to put into a machine that then turns out words <laughs> instead of just using the words yourself. Uh, it, it, it's like almost all technology that has been foisted on the public as, as labor saving, uh, making your life easier is doing the opposite from, as you say, automated answering uh, systems to automated where people check themselves out at at the supermarket so they have to do their own labor 
uh, all of this stuff, I mean, I, there's a million examples where increasingly in the service sector, you can't reach a human being. You have to deal with a chat box or, or some kind of automated system. It's virtually impossible to get a human being. And uh, uh, it, it, there are mistakes made, by the way, all the time by these systems uh, where people have overpaid bills uh, uh, and, and it takes months and months, if not years, to track down the mistake. And I know people who have had those mistakes corrected because they were, they were nakedly in error. The water department, the electricity mm -hmm. department, any of these, but 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 there is this kind of weird belief in the infallibility of of technology, mm. and and it is not infallible, not even remotely is it. In, in fact, it's it's plagued. Every system you can think of is plagued with with error, massive numbers of errors. So so it has reached a point. It has reached. A, a sort of precipice where one has to ask what is the point of any of it? I don't, because I don't see any point to any of it from voting machines to chat boxes to any, I don't see the point of any of it anymore. I'm starting to sound like the Unabomber, I realize, but <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, Johan and then Varun. Yeah, but the Unabomber, he had his points, didn't he? But in relation to what you're saying here, I think it's I think it's important to 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 observe to realize that AI, as as we see it now today, it is basically a very potent propaganda narrative in and of itself because it kind of fuses the myth of progress and this, this Western Faustian expansionism and triumphant secular scientism all, all into one strongly charged, spectacular, symbolic structure, while it also serves its practical functions, whatever those are, I mean, towards immediately reproducing the objectives of capital. So, so I think that's important to realize that the AI is a sort of propaganda narrative just on its own. Right. Well, I think, I think, Technology is ideology. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean that that I think we've talked about that before too. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Varun. Yeah, I think people are starting to buy this idea because I think for about two or three decades, this idea of higher efficiency, proficiency, high speed, quicker access—all of that has been sold quite widely on all platforms for all things. To get access immediately so this instant gratification idea is inbuilt with this ai where there is no room for questioning or for uh like you said before is like it's it's being pitched as if it's infallible absolutely so in that sense it kind of clears the name of the elite the ruling class from all the prejudice and the kind of atrocity that they met out yeah now it's just being handed point, over yeah. to this kind of objective external obje externalized entity that is now going to start making decisions but it's the, the point that goes missing is that it's 
there is no other way for it to form except on the societal mm. classification that already exists because that is the gambit that is the scope of it it doesn't stand outside of that of course that yeah i mean it. i i think i think this is an important point that 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 it's like class struggle exists in the technosphere as mm. well it didn't it yeah. didn't disappear technology didn't do away with class hierarchy no. and 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 mm. it is as one guy one critic of ai said you can still unplug it yeah and, <laughs> you know that's the bottom line johan yeah i, I just had a question for hiryuki because you you mentioned well i i guess you talked about your garden where you have these these spring plants and flowers blossoming uh and i i I was just wanting, I wanted to ask you how, what your perspective is on, I mean, why, why can't this garden be reduced to, to a metaverse function? I mean, what, what's in this tangible relationship between humans and soil and plants and networks of, of life? Why can't that be reduced to this, this mathematical function symbolically expressed in, in, in a digital sphere? Well, we're basically dealing with the uh, uh, unknown factors and the the realm of the mystery. So, mm. uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's the uh, uh, the framework uh, constructed by the uh, um, uh, whatever that's acceptable. So, you know, it's <laughs> you know, how do you uh, quantify? things mm. we don't know you know that that i think it comes down to that and uh, by extension um anything that has to do with um uh, element of unknown can be um reduced uh to uh the framework of the imperial framework uh if we re rely on the uh, um the whatever they come up with ai whatever so um yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's going to accelerate the uh, mode of repression and uh, uh, also the fact that uh, it, it's going to reinforce the, the the cage, which is basically the uh, capitalist imperatives, I guess. You know, I was thinking about, <clears throat> and this just reminds me of this early, that I, years ago, <clears throat> Uh, many years ago, actually, uh, I was teaching at a preschool. That's a long and amusing story in and of itself, but I'm not going to get into that. And they had a huge untouched yard above the school. And I said, can I make that into a garden, a vegetable garden? The kids can all come up and help. And Pretty much I did all the labor myself. I needed an escape from my own head at that time. So I went up there <clears throat> all early spring and dug it and turned the soil and plant. I didn't know what I was doing. This is before the internet. So I had a book on you know, beginning gardening and I was following it as best I could. And I had this wildly successful garden, with tons of vegetables. It was the takeaway, the first takeaway was I was amazed how much food you can produce in a limited amount of space on a, on a limited amount of land. 
huge numbers of food. I was giving food away to all the parents, to everybody in the neighborhood. Uh, it, it was amazing. And it was so simple. I was, I was amazed at, at the simplicity of the whole thing. I mean, you just put seeds in the ground and they come up. It's not complicated. And uh, the simplicity of that feels as if it has receded somehow that, that doing a garden today, and I don't know why, it's something about the, the structure, the architecture of human relations and, and the, the increasingly alienated aspects of, of, of capitalism itself, that it's much harder to, to do anything that simply or spontaneously anymore. You, you, it's harder to, to find simple tools. It's harder to get fertilized. I don't know. Everything feels harder to me. Um, and, and I feel like that's part of this, this receding of, of the, the, the ordinary, the receding of the simplicity of daily life. And, and it's been, it's been, there's been an, in between the simplicity of putting the seed in the ground and you, there is now an, a new kind of strange, opaque structure of, of, of capital, of, of technology, of everything that makes life much, actually much more complicated and not much easier. It's much more complicated and psychologically draining. And this is the thing I wanted to get to. I'm kind of taking my time getting here, but I feel everybody I speak with, the, the friends I have in Norway, different people back in the States, everywhere, there is this sense of, of emotional and psychological fatigue, exhaustion that, that, that everybody seems to feel today, this ennui that is partly connected to, to the forces of capital that seem to be buffeting one, um, from every direction. Hiroyuki? Well, I mean, uh, when you put the seed in the ground, um, or, you know, when you're in the studio making art or music, right. you're dealing with actual matters, actual elements, and you witness uh, whatever that happens between among those elements. And that that's real, you know, we, we're dealing with material reality. But if you're just talking about it, if we're just uh, theorizing uh, without substance, um, the first of all, things get complicated, of course, and also uh, things get uh, misleading. These things, uh, um, I mean, things can be manipulated as well. Right. Mm. <clears throat> well, you know, I think it sounds funny to say this, but again, I didn't know what I was doing back whenever that was 50 years ago. Um, 45 years ago. Uh, but I remember an odd, this sounds like I'm a special needs 11 year old, but I remember being kind of amazed and, and surprised that if I put a collard green seed in the ground, a collard green plant came up and not a pumpkin. Mm -hmm. it, I thought, God, that's 
a miracle. How does that seed know not to be a pumpkin? Mm. No, it came up as a collard. That sounds stupid, but I think, I think like the generation that my children are born into, the five-year-olds, my younger kids, uh, I think this, this tangible, as you say, material reality is going to be much harder for them to mm. access mm. somehow. Um, Johan. Well, that, that's great because what you are describing from my point of view is the immediate experience of the of the of the, the teleology of, of forms in nature of, of causation and how causation inheres in causes and, and can produce specific effects and so on and that i think is is being distorted that, that sort of basic intuition of, of how the world works but but you also earlier spoke of of uh, fear in relation to propaganda you mentioned the crime bill and so on and i i have a little reflection on on this in connection to to well maybe not ai but propaganda at least so, so there was this uh, there was this marxist collective they had a publication called endnotes i don't know if it's still active but it's online still at least endnotes to marx and they published this this brilliant little essay called Sleep Workers Enquiry, and I've sent this to you two years ago, maybe. And it was this biographical reflection by a programmer. And, and this guy experienced how his subconscious <clears throat> became sort of colonized or appropriated by his role in the order of production. So, so he constantly dreamed about coding. And his mind was, was active solving problems for capital while he was sleeping. And I think this brilliantly illustrated how the priorities and the objectives of this hierarchical structure of production becomes internalized by the worker, by, by, by the subject, by the citizen who submits to its authority. And I think there's a clear and important connection here to the phenomenon of propaganda uh, uh, in terms of this penetration of the intentionalities, the penetration of the, the goals and the objectives and the agenda of capital, of the power inherent in the social structure. Uh, for what he describes here, it's, it's like how your cognitive resources are recruited to address the problems of the order of production. And I think that's, that's basically a very good description of, of the phenomenon of propaganda. So then when, when this internalization is, is complete or at least gone, gone a long way, your cognitive resources will then be applied towards reproducing the dominant worldview and towards defending it in the face of, of any cognitive dissonance that may arise from, from anything that contradicts it and the power structure. And what's, what's key here in relation to fear, I think is submission to an identification with authority and, and the basic non-rational primal drives that, that bring this about. And that's why I think breaking the fear is, is paramount in, in all of this we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, this kind of segues because we're talking about propaganda and, and um, it's, you know, it's extraordinarily <clears throat> acute right now. And I, I, saw a clip of a speech that Kamala Harris gave somewhere and it was gibberish. Mm. I, several people tweeted it, actually several different 
people tweeted the very, very same clip saying, can anyone make sense of what she's saying here? And I listened, I just, it was just word salad. It was the strangest oh. thing. And she, she looked completely lost, like she just had a, you know, an aneurysm, mild aneurysm, and didn't know what she was saying. It was like random word generator was turned on. She was spewing this stuff out. And I thought this person is going to be on the on the presidential ticket as vice president again, because Biden, speaking of incoherence, intends to run again. And and I keep repeating this idea. We've talked about narrative, that the importance of narrative, but that everything is allegory. <clears throat> I think this is the truth of the world in a sense. Uh, chat box is, is, an, is an allegory. Uh, capitalism, electoral politics, Joe Biden is, is the perfect representative of, of late capital. Uh, uh, senile, impotent, lost, doddering and and he can barely walk in a straight line at this point and then he's going to run again and they're going to let him run again if he survives that long but the what i was getting to in terms of propaganda because it's a it's a very trending topic today is the tucker carlson story fox news fires tucker carlson and this in turn begs a discussion of the donald trump factor yet again something i thought maybe the world had escaped from, but apparently not. Here you have <clears throat> Democratic, progressive Democrat, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, demanding the deplatforming of Tucker Carlson. He should be banned from social media, from television, from everywhere. This is a progressive demanding, insisting on total censorship of somebody. And this opinion is being applauded. You know, she gave an interview with Jan Pisaki, is that her name? The former White House um, spokesperson uh, uh, who sat nodding sagely as uh, AOC, you know, held forth on this extraordinarily authoritarian notion of just absolute censorship, deplatforming some, erasing them. Uh, <clears throat> so that is where we are. That is, that is <clears throat> the state of, <clears throat> of, 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 of American, of the American political event right now. And uh, it then segues into, and I'll turn it over, so it then segues into what does one make of Tucker Carlson? Here is a guy who was born into at least almost wealth, near wealth. Uh, <clears throat> he lived in La Jolla, California, a very rich, exclusive enclave. Uh, his, his father, I believe, was ambassador to somewhere, the Seychelles, the Maldives, some <laughs> insignificant ambassadorship that, you know, are handed out to wealthy patrons of whoever is president. Uh, <clears throat> and he was, a, for 10 years, a, a fixture on Fox News, the right-wing Murdoch uh, channel that everybody loves to hate. And then, I guess, 
Carlson had his Damascene moment and realized all the wrong he had been doing. And I, you know, he says, I can't believe I supported the Iraq war and on and on and on. Now, he's also been extraordinarily good on a lot of topics this year. Everybody was amazed. I was amazed. I'm hugely skeptical and distrustful. He feels like a, 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 a textbook example of the limited hangout. Yeah. But he was one of the first guys, maybe the only guy I heard on mainstream media denouncing the lockdowns. Hmm. And uh, and he's been right about a number of things. So I don't know. I turn it over to you guys. Comments? Okay, this is what we call dead air. <laughs> I think it's... Uh... I don't know. I, I really don't trust these kind of kind of spectacular events because largely mm. it will lead to the appropriation of the counter narrative that exists in the public. Yeah. Eventually, right. that's a, it's a kind of neutralizing strategy. Whether it's a concerted effort or not, I I don't think anybody can be sure of that. But it always eventually leads to a kind of dilution of what the opposition stands for. Eventually, I think. Right. I completely no, agree. Yeah. I agree. But this leads to a second question. There's a great comment. <clears throat> One of the readers of my blog, George MC, George MC, uh, has a great comment on my current blog post. I encourage people to read it because it's something, he touches on something I have said recently. I think I tweeted it. Um, my sense that the majority of left, supposedly Marxist leftist socialist outlets and commentators, the forces of the left are, are psyops of some sort, are, are, are spooks, are to, to, it's just a sense, maybe this means I have reached clinical paranoia, I don't know, but, <laughs> but uh it's a sense i can't shake at all and i could list a bunch of names but i but i don't want to do that all i will say is that someone like noam chomsky is probably richer than tucker carlson for the record and his opinions on things have been worse than carlson's over the last few years so make of all of this what you will there are very few voices on the left and george in this comment talks about the spectacular failure of so much of the left regarding covid mm. and that continues and this brings us back to the trump factor again because there is always this lurking shadow the specter of donald trump that you will mm. be associated as part of maga you know that you are part of the the <clears throat> the the far right nutcases that staged a fake assault on the Capitol that everyone pretends was real. I, the whole thing is just so surreal at a certain point. But uh, it is true that that one of the great litmus tests, in the same way that the Milosevic story was a, a litmus test twenty five years ago. Uh, the COVID story and now 
the US NATO Russia story, uh, Ukraine story is another litmus test. And so much of the left has been abysmal. And we've talked about this endlessly. But but anyway, um, there's several topics rolled into that incoherent rant. Johan. No, those, those are important points. And, and that's a great comment from your reader. I just wanted to add that that I think what Varun's saying about about the Tucker Carlson situation is, is very important as, as well because whether or not it's intentional, it, it becomes this ritualistic burning of a scapegoat that both serves to to purify the the media from those unclean perspectives and also marks the 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 frames of acceptable discourse in a, in a clear manner for everyone to see. So, so I mean, and, and that's the effect, whether or not it's at all intentional. Right, right, right. <clears throat> well, and that, that I, I mentioned last time, and it's in, it's in my current blog post, in Adorno's book, Jargon of Authenticity, which mm. is largely ostensibly about Heidegger, but he talks about jargon, the jargon that he associated with Heidegger, but which extends well beyond Heidegger. And that's what you see here, because what he said was, people don't know what they're saying, and it doesn't matter that they don't know what they're saying. Uh, and that's, that's the reality we are in. I think people just, and this is part of the, in, the insidious effects of social media, of, of the internet, of all these various platforms, online platforms, is there is such a, a surplus of verbiage and opinion and commentary by ill-informed, half-educated people. This, and I'll use another example. Um, that that it's very hard, and and those platforms on social media are designed to make real discussion impossible. First of all, and and secondly you are talking to people who are getting very invested, emotionally invested in topics like, let's say, the virus or the vaccine. And, and they're not doctors and they have no medical training. I'm not a doctor. I have no medical training. I can talk about the politics of the, the lockdowns, the vaccine mandates. That's what I can talk about. I know the doctors I respect and trust, okay, I can refer to them. And there's a complicated process that, you know, from which I, I will either trust or not trust these doctors. But I can't comment on the science because I, I, don't, I don't work in a lab. I don't, you know, but people are invested in these things they can't possibly really know anything mm. about. So they're, they're arguing surrogate symbols you know, mm. they trust this doctor that's on my team and your doctor is on your team and we're going to fight it out uh, in this ridiculous adumbrated platform that mm. encourages snark and aggression and and to what end? To no end. Uh, and and this is the problem. It's like the, the one of the problems with the democratization of, of uh, that that democratization of opinion, in a sense, that, that has happened over the last 25 years. And there is a problem with it. You know, the answer is not 
AOC's deplatforming people and mass censorship like Obama wanted, uh, that's not the answer. But I admit there's a problem because it, 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 has, it seems to have leaked in, bled into the social fabric in a way that is, that is disturbing somehow. Yeah. Um, Varun and then Johan. Well, I, I think the scenario that you outlined about social media and this kind of um, half-baked conversations and stuff like this, I think that's also the fallout of that has been more trust in AI, in the public in general. Because yeah, that's a good point. I mean, right? Because, I mean, before 2020, the the argument was always look it up on Google, man. Google knows, right? Like it's, <laughs> Google knew everything. And now that's being replaced by AI told me so, right? So it's just this kind of obsessive reliance on technology rather than other people's experience. And what you point out very rightly, I think, mm. which I, I, I presume a lot of people are going to have a problem with about the democratization of opinion is also abetted and aided by easy access to all kinds of technology. So like anybody's now a photographer, anybody's a writer, anybody's mm. a filmmaker, anybody. Yeah. So the access has kind of, and this is something that we discuss is that the access to ease of technology for reproduction has lent itself for the destruction of narrative itself in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a thought about that, but, but Johan mm -hmm. first. Yeah, you just you used to carry the, the flag of anarchism here, which I guess I it's my it's my duty to do. I what you're describing here, Varun, the increased trust in, in in spectacular technology instead of actual human beings. Well well, I wouldn't describe that. I, I think that's pretty inimical to actual democratization of, of discourse. And and maybe the problem isn't so much democratization in any sense, but but rather the loss of, of, of basic critical anchoring in, in the real world. I would, I mean, I would go down the line of that argument instead, I think. Well, yeah, I, look, I, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, democratization may or may not be, be the right word, but but there, you're quite right that it is this loss of, of, of the ability to discriminate and, and think critically uh, based on some body of experience or knowledge that you have. <clears throat> and, and the loss of narrative, God, this was one of the first things I wrote about in the blog. Uh, based on my experience teaching at, at even at the film school that, that students couldn't follow basic narratives. You, you tried to, you know, uh, ask them for what is conflict in a story? Give me an example of conflict and so on. And they couldn't do it. Uh, I mean, literally it was just weird. And, and <clears throat> so, the fact that nobody reads, I, we, are, we are now entering a phase, it's been, it's been happening over the last 30 years, maybe longer, but the society has reached a point 
now where pretty much nobody reads and the internet is is part of part of the reason for that certainly or people read in a very fragmented fashion i read in a more fragmented fashion than i used to but uh but i still read and i read online a lot because i can no longer afford the books that i would much prefer to be reading but books have become prohibitively expensive anyway that loss of of critical faculty uh, an experience based on on what you've learned and your own personal experience and what has been taught to you in, in <clears throat> whatever institution or social group or whatever is no longer in play. People have opinions that they shop for. Um, that's part of their their brand, their makeup, uh, their image. This is, you know, it is it is not the opinion itself, the point of view itself, the content is is much less important than than the appearance that they purchased in this marketplace of non-ideas, you know. And uh, I think that the the when I say democratization, I simply mean that that there is no there one is deluged with with dumb shit everywhere all mm. the time. And <laughs> and here's another example of of a loss of discrimination and taste. The New York Review books I, has become appalling. It's, it used to be something that I read cover to cover every issue 30 years ago, <clears throat> but I have a nostalgia for it. So I still subscribe to it and I still read it. But I noticed something in the current issue that 40 years ago, <clears throat> you, would, you would pick up a New York Review of books and there would be articles on writers like William Gass or, or even Pinchon or, or John Cheever or John Updike, who I don't like either one of them. But there, and there would be, there would be re-evaluations of Hemingway and Faulkner and Juan Rulfo and, and Cesar Pavesi and Thomas Mann and I, all kinds of people. And today, when you get a New York review of books, the writers and artists that they are talking about are is are people that have risen to prominence over the last 15 or 20 years and it's junk it's just garbage it's it's it, it unreadable stuff now people may be the current one is <laughs> i don't want to okay maxine hong kingston right she's very popular she's much applauded and rewarded and she's become quite the doyon of literary circles and <clears throat> she's Asian for one thing. She ticks a lot of boxes, a woman, Asian, blah, blah, blah. She writes about identity issues and it's just turgid prose. It's just, it's just to me, my humble opinion, it's, it's just terrible stuff and not worthy of serious discussion. Uh, and so that's one of the problems. You can't write about Juan Rulfo forever, for example, uh, <clears throat> because he died a long time ago now, half a century ago. And what has come since is, 
it, it, the, the quality has seeped from it over time more and more and more until we have reached absolute zero today. So, so the New York Review of Books, which also is politically reactionary in the extreme now, but is is uh, is a is a is a shadow of what it once was. It's a facsimile review now. I don't know what to say about it. Uh, and this is true across the board because this the the culture, Western culture, is reaching a dead end now. Is reaching its final um, death throes, I think, and that is that is part of the problem. Hiroyuki. Well, I I just keep uh, thinking that uh, the the things we, we're discussing. Um, are still within the realm of uh, um, the basic framework. Um, I mean, capitalism uh, spans between fascism and social democracy, and neither options would relieve the class system, exploitation, subjugation, but if we don't know if that if that's the framework, uh, no matter where we go, no matter who is in charge, no matter who is let go or uh, be popular, um, you know it doesn't really matter. And 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 all those things can be sources of um, activation of the system. And you know what I mean? It's, yeah. you know, all the talks about uh, uh, Tucker Carlson and uh, AI, uh, the, there's no uh, uh, meaningful leap into humanity unless we face the fact that we are just oscillating between fascism and social democracy. And we're talking about you know, the fascism is coming. Well, fascism is capitalism, you know, and and we want democracy. And when people talk about democracy, you know, that's social democracy. So, you know, there will be um, exploitation and subjugation. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about any of these things because when when you get in and talk about it, you accept the fact that this is the framework, you know? Mm -hmm. This is not a fair um, situation for anybody who is willing to think about the alternatives to the, uh, the current system. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here kind of searching for a couple of things because I because I always I wanted to add something and I agree with everything you just said. I mean that that is I think all true. The problem is and I, I mean I just want to kind of footnote myself. There are great writers writing today, but they don't appear in the New York there are people uh, uh, Jim Carroll's Basketball Diaries, notwithstanding DiCaprio made a movie about it, was a great book. It came out in the late 70s, if, 
if I recall correctly, as I know I was living in New York at the time. Uh, uh, the, you know, there, there were, but Dennis Johnson was a great writer uh, who once called me America's greatest playwright, but he was very drunk when he said that. Uh, nonetheless, I'm going to hold on to that. Uh, who's the guy who wrote, James Kelman, uh, uh, whose book, God, what's the name of Kelman's book? Hold on, let me look this up. There are terrific writers, uh, but there is something about the, the culture overall that makes these things, uh, the writing of a novel, just like the, the writing, uh, the making of, of feature length films, very difficult. Kelman's book is How Late It Was, How Late. This is a brilliant book. Uh, one of the last great novels written, I think. Uh, but it's hard. It's, it's, it's much harder than it's ever been in a sense. It's, we are seeing the end of modernism for one thing. This is, it has, the trajectory has, has reached its, its landing spot and it is no more. So, <clears throat> one is inundated, this is propaganda too, one is inundated with bad art and bad writers and bad filmmakers and they're written about as if they are good and people will are encouraged then to say, well, but it's all just subjective. And of course, it's not all just subjective. There is a standard, there is a tradition, there is you know, mm. uh, <clears throat> 400 years of, of or more of, of English literature and uh, and it's it's an uphill battle to have these conversations anymore though and I and I have tired I realize I avoid them I've, I have grown incredibly tired of explaining to people why well, pick a name popular name uh, is is not a is not a serious writer but but it's uh, it, it's a no-win situation, and this extends to politics too. Of course, I mean, we come right back to to these questions of uh, of the COVID narrative, the vaccine narrative, and they're rolling. That's being rolled out again. Not they. Governments are rolling out again statistics about uh, there's a new form of COVID. Time to wear masks again, and uh, it's extraordinary. Uh, Varun, did you have something? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, just to add to this idea that um, opinion versus expertise versus experience and so on and so forth, that's the discussion, is that the dilution also, because of this, I mean, I'm going to use the word again, democratization, but the, the dilution that has happened has also led to the rise of influencers on social media, which is yeah. instant. That's what's happened, right? Like, so there is an, there's a facade behind which there is nothing, but they will advertise something. Actually, I mean, they're, they're just basically mercenaries. They will advertise anything that they're given money for, which kind, of, which kind of ties into the COVID narrative as well. That is the reason that so many people followed so many celebrities yeah. rather than just yeah. their politicians, which is why it became validated. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I mean, I as far as I'm, concerned with anarchy man like i think i'm i'm very much on board with the idea but 
<laughs> with, with with tact, with art, with creation, with with uh, delving into narrative or mythology, I think that those those aspects of the psyche have gone completely missing because of this dilution. Mm. That if easy access means that you just need a shallow dive and then you you can you can state your opinion to the world now, and but people she... should be sitting and listening. You know, like so that's a it's a bad conundrum to have in the sense that it's not that I'm upholding the establishment to say okay only the establishment needs to or established people need to talk. I'm happy to listen to anybody. That, yeah, that yeah, no, no, no. Say. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I do, and 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 that's right. And but this touches on something Johan mentioned earlier. I think in passing, this ties in with science, progress, the notion of, of quantification of as, as validation and what popularity means and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> and I always use the example that once upon a time in the movie section of the paper, which used to be called film and culture or something, and now is called entertainment uh, in the LA times anyway, uh, the, it had reviews and and articles on on actors and filmmakers and directors, and now uh, there's every week a huge above the fold listing of box office receipts, which used to be in the business section, but is now in what used to be the art section. And this speaks to this this quantification idea, but this goes back to science progress mm. and 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 this urge for it's like the loss it's the loss of meaning and and the erosion of meaning and not meaning of reason, but something else more nihilistic is is traveling underneath these these. Uh, phenomenon and that's a topic that's very complicated and probably exceeds the scope of, of this kind of podcast but it is it's something again that Jonathan Beller talks about the the that so much science was tied in as a justification for racism and colonialism and and the, the privileging of, of white privilege, <laughs> privileging of white privilege. See, <clears throat> my language skills are eroding too. That, <laughs> that, that uh, photography was, was developed to favor white skin hmm. and was then used in, in as police classification photos, mug shots. There's a whole variety of branches of this that that speaks to I think when I was a boy we were taught that science developed organically of its own sort of own volition that that it 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 was new politically neutral and of course it's not it's it's absolutely not and we are in a sense shaped by the forces of of these technological changes if, if, under the guise, under the banner of progress. Yeah. And, and 
it's all to be, I think this has to be investigated and questioned now. If we're going to, we as a society are going to somehow as a, as a species are somehow going to get past uh, uh, the state of, uh, this week I've read 10 articles about massive asteroids hurtling towards earth. We're going to hit Earth, destroy Earth. Argentina, we would make a hole the size of Argentina if they hit us. This crazy shit, I've heard this for 50 years, actually. Mm. And, uh, but it's in hyperdrive now. It has, it has accelerated exponentially. Johan. Yeah, just to, just to connect with what you've just said, and maybe to, to yeah. So, so, as I said earlier, I, I think key to all of this is to somehow address fear at the heart of everything that the fear that drives us our, our sub-rational pre-rational drives and this is also necessary to to recover meaning since in a situation of fear you can't really connect with with the world around you and i think the establishing of, of real tangible compassionate relation and the possibilities it entails is is critical to this so i i have on my coffee table here the the brochure that hiroyuki gave me in, in in when we met in tokyo and it sort of reminds me of of uh, well the fact that we actually managed to get together it reminds me of, of all of you, my, my dearest friends, and all the things we have actually actually gotten off the ground over these couple of years. Well, not least that conference in, in January, so to speak. And, and I think these sorts of tangible, compassionate human connections and connections between people and our environment, well, that's, that's gotta be the ground to build on in every sense here. <clears throat> yeah, I th I think that's true, and I, I think I think human contact. People are being robbed of contact mm. with other humans, and and the, the pandemic was just the distillation of a pre-existing trend. Um, Varun, yeah, I think that's a really great point, Johan, because I think and it connects to what Hiroyuki was saying before: is how do you how do you step out of this um, mental and emotional prison? And I think the fear is of what John has written about, about venturing into something that is not charted, the unknown, right? Mm. So all relations then are new. Everything has to be reformatted without interference by the establishment. So in the sense <laughs> that the, I mean, the, the fear is of not, like, I think I made a comment earlier, is that of going into the dark, but not having anything to hold on to, right? Mm. And this is why I think the Trump argument keeps coming back, or AOC is the, the shining light, or people are rooting for Assange, but they will never root for their neighbor, right? right. <laughs> it's, the, it's this thing that there is, the hero is always televised, or the heroine is always televised. It's never going to be your neighbor or your friend yeah. or somebody you just met well, on the street. So, you know, those are yeah. the, those, those kind of dynamics. I think if that, if that, how do you, I don't know how to reintroduce that, right? Like in the sense, except to do it myself, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know how that transformation can occur in society. I really don't know. Well, if I, I may just want to say one more thing um, on this, because I think this idea of the unknown is, is very important and mystery, things that can't be quantified and defined, weighed, measured, cataloged, the things that resist that. And in writing, I know when I was writing for the thing, I've taught writing so many, for so many years off and on. I remember when I got to Hollywood, but I also remember this from when I was roped into attending uh, uh, institutional theater workshops and go along. And <clears throat> But in Hollywood, it was pronounced that if you were a writer, you were told, well, make an outline. I said, but geez, I hate outlines. It kills all the creativity. I don't know where the story is going yet. The characters will take me to where it's, I don't know. I don't want to know. I can't know. If I know it's going to be, it's going to be a bad script. It's going to be a bad play. And I had countless exercises and examples. And I used to try to tell students in theater the two things in theater, and I probably have said this before, the stage on stage is the con- your consciousness. That's the conscious world. Off stage is the unconscious. And I know that's true because when you first take little kids to the theater at intermission, they run up to look in the wings to see what's being hidden by the curtains because they sense that that's where the real action is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Greek tragedy, it was always emissaries from the offstage come running in and say, oh, this so-and-so happened, they committed suicide, ate her children, I'll be back. And they run off stage again. Uh, and this, what's his name? Um, guy, I can see, Blum. Wrote uh, Blooded Thought. I'm going to look that up very quickly. Herbert Blau. Fuck me, blind. Um, Herbert Blau was is great. Read Blooded Thought is a terrific book. He was one of the last great film uh, theater theorists in in America. In fact. And uh, my friend Martin Epstein, who was a Padua, was one of his, his colleagues and students and friends. Uh, the other thing was, I, I used to try to give example, because I'm appalled at how bad writing is, and I'm really free associating here. Feel free to shut me up at a certain point. But I used to give a write, try to give a writing example to people, <laughs> people who know me are going to laugh because I've said this for 30 years. If you have, I'll give you three examples of a scene. The first scene, there's a man on stage. Another man walks in and says, I'm hungry. Do you have a banana? And the man seated on stage says, no. Why would I have a banana? And the first man says, yeah, okay, and leaves. That's the bad scene. The second scene is the guy's on stage. The man comes in. They look at each other. And... The guy says, I'm hungry. Do you have a banana? The second man doesn't answer him. The seated man on stage. 
So the first guy who asks for the banana turns and leaves. Ah, this is the better scene because there's an unanswered question. Mm. The third scene, guy walks on stage, there's a man seated there, they look at each other. The seated man says, no, I don't have a banana. The first guy looks at him and leaves. That's the best scene. He's answering an unasked question. So it's like two tiers of mystery suddenly. This is the mm -hmm. fundamental uh, uh, mechanism that you begin with when you write for theater or, or film or even in novels, frankly. That, that is the unconscious, that is the beginning of some kind of road to the unconscious, which is mm -hmm. where everything happens. And when I have students and they say, but I don't know where the story is going, I always say, good, good, don't, you shouldn't know. <laughs> it goes nowhere. Maybe it's meant to go nowhere. Going nowhere is okay. What does that even mean? You know, uh, but it's, but it's, but this is anathema to how they teach people about art and literature and writing today. It just, it's the absolute opposite of it. Varun? That's an exceptional example, I think, to highlight um, what Corey has uncovered, which is what's going on behind the, like, behind the wings. What's on stage with Greta and what's been happening in the background. <laughs> so in that sense, the storytelling is immaculate, absolutely immaculate. You won't find, like, if you've been following the mainstream narrative of how this whole green movement has taken place, you won't find the what's happening behind the scenes. But once you get backstage in that mm -hmm. sense, it's absolutely exceptionally mind-blowing stuff. So that's, yeah, I think it's that, that mm -hmm. I mean, in the sense that the world is a stage and we are all actors in it, that kind of starts to make sense a little bit in, in those terms. In that <clears throat> well, I think that, I think that I used to also be fascinated <clears throat> with, with medieval um, maps, maps of the world where they didn't really know what was past a certain point. So what did they draw past the unexplored world? They drew sea monsters. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was very telling. We want to, we want to, people are drawn to, we want to go find the sea monsters and they don't exist and we are being denied access to the sea monsters. <laughs> <laughs> um, Corey, what are you, you're so quiet. <laughs> Because I was laying in front of my fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, yeah, Zoom doesn't like me again today. This is why technology sucks. I just decided it won't work half the time. So I've heard some of what you guys have talked about, but not all of it. And I also want to add, I think it was the global or the global um, Google CEO that said a few years ago that AI will be, is or will be more profound than um, fire. <laughs> And I just want to say that's a big lie. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> and I can attest to that. Yeah. And, um, oh, God, you guys have talked about a lot. So what to add? So I don't know. Last week, I was thinking about that film, The Big Short, which I saw at the last independent theater in this little city um, when it came out, I think it was 2018. Anyway, it had in it, I was thinking about it because of water, like how now we're seeing um, water, you know, the whole push for water to become 
you know, an, a new asset class. And um, there's a lot of focus on water. Of course, they don't say that, um, but that's exactly what's happening. And, um, you know, I was just thinking how how that guy, Michael Burry, so he, he in the past few years, I'm not exactly sure how many years, his big investments were in two things. They were in prison, some sort of big prison um, corporation, and also in water, right? And it's just like this whole idea to talk about, you know, green economy and sustainability within this framework, within the system, based on markets and capitalism is just so asinine. And it's ridiculous. Like, obviously, if we invest in prisons, we have to see growth in prison population, right? If we invest in, in water, we're going to have to create um, more reasons to, um, you know, that, that will make things like water disasters and that all profitable, um, you know, obviously infrastructure, every, it just becomes profit driven. Um, just like it, when you invest in pharma, you it's you know, you're, you're going to see more illness, right? Because that's how you're going to treat the illness, which in turn makes profits. And so it just becomes really, really frustrating that that conversation doesn't seem to ever move, you know, outside of our podcast. <laughs> and um, yeah, just yeah. really frustrating. And then if you take it one step further, right, if it were, if this was all publicly owned, you have to get those costs down and you want to get rid of it because it's costing money out of the public purse, right? Yeah. Um, so you have, you want people to be healthy. You want um, the prison population to go down and, you know, maybe, you know, as much as possible, you want all these things to be managed and go away and society to become better and all of that. But when you have billionaire millionaires and um, ruling class, rich people, whoever investing in it, we're creating the opposite type of society that we want to live in. And yeah, it's just really frustrating. We have no, no initiative to make things better because everything's becoming more and more privatized. So we have every, and there's all, every initiative to make things worse because that's yeah. what's profitable. Yeah. And people, <clears throat> and people are being access to other human beings is, is being limited more and more and more and more and more. Uh, and, and everybody recognizes and the green thing I just saw today I know I shared it with you guys that the Biden energy secretary Jennifer Granholm <clears throat> says uh, she her goal is the US military will adopt to all electric vehicles by 2030. <laughs> Okay, so what's the what's the Vegas opening line on on that happening? About six trillion to one against. It's of course it's not going to happen. It's not feasible, and and there is there is an end game ahead for electric cars anyway. But but the green thing. I mean, you can put green in front of anything the green military people say this we're trying to get a green military <laughs> this, this is this is the you know the the what's the, what's that term um oh my god senility <laughs> what um, what's the term for contradictory oxymoron no oxymoron, oxymoron. 
Yeah, like military intelligence. That's an oxymoron. <laughs> right? um, uh, a green military. That's another one. It's just, it's just extraordinary to me. I, I just came across the website greenprisons.org. <laughs> 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 oh my yeah. god I, okay we're gonna include this in the links yeah my no, god terrifying um <clears throat> well i did see i did see a video series that uh, the beginning of which was to teach you how to say fuck you in chinese <laughs> i thought that was kind of useful i just that popped into my head um chinida yeah, <laughs> yeah, see, um, this brings me back just one more kind of thing I wanted to touch on. We're, we're going to have final comments, and uh, and that relates to the Tucker Carlson story, too. And I wanted to mention this before the, the problem with this mass assault this deluge of data information, of stories, of mini narratives, of mini non-narratives, of fragments of ideas and stories, is the growth of completely manufactured fiction, deep fakes, you can't trust any photograph, and, and there is no mechanism for verification. In one sense, this may well, there, there is a progressive side to this probably because it, 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 it may make uh, the privileging of verification per se mm. uh, less and less important. And there may be something good in that. But, but the problem is, for example, stories about Ukraine and the US proxy war, it's very hard, if not impossible, to get in Western media anything resembling the truth. We know that. I don't know if the stories I accept as as factual are in fact factual. I I trust certain people. I trust Pepe Escobar and Seymour Hirsch and certain other what's his name Lira Gonzalo Lira, but I don't know. And and stories about China, it is even harder. China is impenetrable. Uh, uh, I don't know what to believe if I listen to most people in the West, China is an authoritarian surveillance state that sounds like Orwellian and nightmarish. I doubt that's literally true. Uh, I'm pretty certain it's not true, but I don't know to what degree it's untrue or truthful. I, I really would like to visit China. Anybody wants to pay for a trip for me to China? The, uh, please get in touch with me. Uh, but the other thing with this is, is what was raised earlier, I think Varun did this idea of influencers and popularity online. And I know a lot of leftist journalists who are suspiciously spook-like with 30,000, 40,000, 15,000, whatever numbers of followers. These are people that monetize their work. You have to buy a subscription. There's a very elaborate in sort of drop downs and pop ups and everything that encourage you to, to, in quotation marks, donate and give and buy a subscription. You get special features and on and on and on. And, and I have always found this problematic 
for a leftist or somebody who is a dissident voice, somebody who is critiquing capitalism to demand to be paid. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the upshot of this is I don't make any money and they make a lot of money. Uh, well, I do get donations. We here at Aesthetic Resistance, we do get some, but not, not very many. And, and that's okay in a certain sense Smallness, Bly used to talk about this with, with art, with poetry, said it's not meant to be widely consumed. It's a bad thing if it's widely consumed. Mm. And that's true here too. This is, this is like a trickle down theory of some sort. Uh, you're, you're trying to plant seeds and educate and this is, it's not a popularity contest, but, mm. but it's deeply entrenched in Western, the West, psychologically entrenched in the West now that, that if a movie opens and it's a huge box office success, everybody wants to go see it because a lot of other people saw it. That's reason enough. And if something opens and nobody goes sees it, then it's dead. Nobody will go see it because popularity is what it is. It's in a certain form of authority. It's a very strange thing and it's built into science and technology and the whole, the whole history. Okay, final thoughts from everybody? Well, I think the, uh, the popularity itself, um, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, the, the fact that the, uh, the whole thing is uh, set up in this structure makes it uh, problematic because uh, things that are more acceptable seem to float to the top because of the structural reasons. So, right, right. you know, again, you know, it's a, uh, it's a tricky thing. It, um, you know, we, I mean, we, we come across uh, good articles, good writers, um, somehow, uh, somewhere, but that's a good point. Yeah. You know, yep. you know what I mean? Yep. No, we do. And there are really great people <clears throat> out there writing and we link them as much as we can and talk about them as much. It's true. Uh, cynicism is just another mode of conformity, mm -hmm. as Arno said. Um, <clears throat> Johan, final you, thoughts? Yeah, I have nothing I mean, more to like add. The, I, Go ahead, Vatu. Yeah, in the 90s, we were supposed to be looking at Iraq. And then, like in the last decade, we were supposed to be looking at Afghanistan. And now we're supposed to be looking at Russia and China. So it's mm -hmm. this <laughs> kind of... Um, yeah. The collective gaze is always extremely well curated and controlled in that sense of where we're looking and what we are thinking. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> good point. Corey? Um, I think you guys were speaking to literacy, um, the decline of literacy. I wanted just to add that I was listening actually today to um, a podcast or something about the child literacy, literacy declining in Canada for grade twoers. It was um, actually a show with parents calling in that were really, really struggling with their children not being able to read and um, not really having any resources of how to deal with this because in school, um, a lot of these you know basic things are leaving, being replaced by coding and that thing. And anyway, I found a report from November that um, child literacy, literacy has declined by um, almost 30% in a single decade. Wow. 
I mean, that, that's huge. That's huge. And, and at the same time, which is connected, um, myopia, nearsightedness is skyrocketing, <laughs> right? Wow. From, like our eyes, our eyes are literally changing from the screens. From the screens, yeah. 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 Well, I, you see children glued to their screens, teenagers glued to their screen. They don't ever look up from them. They walk through the city without looking at a single human face. So I guess that shouldn't be surprising. Johan, did you have a final thought? No, I, I don't think I have anything more to add. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, okay. Um, uh, well, I'd let, I wanna thank Jack Lippman. I wanna thank uh, the people who do write in from all over, um, our loyal followers and new people that, that it's much appreciated and uh, thank to all of you and uh, we'll hopefully do this again. We'll have links to this podcast below the podcast when it is up, which I hope will be soon. Okay. Thank you, Corey, Broom, Hero, Yugi, and Johan. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.